Hello, and welcome to this, the 12th edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and this week I've been to the School of Oriental and African Studies in London to meet Tim Barrett, whose new book, the intriguingly entitled The Woman Who Discovered Printing, was recently published by Yale. As always, there are full details on the website, podularity.com. Tim's book takes us back to the China of the Empress Wu, around the turn of the 8th century AD. And at the start of the book, he imagines the English monk and scribe, the Venerable Bede, endowed with the gift of seeing what was happening in contemporary China. I asked him why. I think people writing about China have a problem in that within the sort of sinological circles, saying Tang Dynasty means something, but of course it won't mean anything to the general public. So I wanted to give people a kind of fix on how long ago. I'm not sure that uh, that um, uh, how widely known the sort of rough dates of the Venerable Bede are to the general public, but at any rate, you get the idea it was quite a long mm. time ago, but not as long ago as the Romans. Mm. We're talking about 13 centuries ago, aren't we, more, yes. more or less exactly? Yes. Yes. So I thought that would be a quick way to fast forward backwards, as it were, to the um, time that I wanted to talk about. And you imagine him, an English monk, having a sort of bird's eye view above his immediate circumstances and being able to see as far as ancient China. Yes. There was another purpose to that as well, which is that uh, I'm primarily a historian of religion. And one thing that I wanted to do is bring out right from the start the importance of religious ideas. And to have a monk was, I think, quite helpful. That, That puts you right into a religious situation. And in some ways, the important religious ideas are comparable across Eurasia. Uh, There's an interest in relics of holy people. There's um, uh, strong fears about the future. And and these were two themes that I wanted to bring out in the course of my writing. And I thought that kicking off with Bede would be a good way to introduce them right at the start. So people weren't surprised when they came up later. Mm. And one of the main things that your book wants to achieve is to, I suppose, overturn the comfortable notion of the development of printing which we have in the West as a Western phenomenon. Gutenberg develops it in Germany in the 15th century. And even if we know a bit about other cultures printing before then, we still tend to see it through that particular lens of medieval printing and and so you're 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 sort of seeking to 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 get back beyond that so you can you can construct a whole different mindset and culture in which chinese printing is developing yes i think there's been quite a remarkable amount of work done in recent times which tends to suggest that we have completely underrated the sophistication of chinese printing simply because they used a slightly different technology they used wood blocks which we associate with sort of fine art and so forth but in fact, they, um, they could compete with the sort of Gutenberg type of uh, letterpress right the way up until the innovations of the 19th century and lithography and so forth. And we have people, European observers from the 19th century who say as much. So the question then arises, where does this all come from? And I think the burning question is, We think of printing as having revolutionised intellectual life in Europe. How come it doesn't appear to have revolutionised intellectual life in China? You know, there's no great fanfare uh, when it arrives. It seems to sort of creep in. 
and people don't seem to talk about it much for quite a long time. So that was the problem that I was trying to address overall. So in order to tackle that problem, I suppose what we have to know about is what the intellectual culture was like before printing came along. So we, we know, you know, what what its strengths and deficiencies were and therefore can evaluate the potential contribution that printing made to it. Yes, I think I spent quite a few chapters just setting up the background and especially the religious background because I think you have to see that printing in China came out of a slightly slightly unfamiliar religious environment. As I said earlier, it has analogies with Europe, but they're not exact. And I think that explaining that background was, uh, I thought, a preliminary task that somebody had to do, because most people have simply written about uh, printing in China in the past from a purely technological viewpoint. They haven't really asked themselves why was this happening or not happening. So I think in that sense, what I'm doing is, is introductory, and I hope that it will lead to more people becoming interested in this area. Because the, the Western attitude has been rather patronising, it could be said, towards Chinese developments of printing, that they, they came upon the technology or they discovered the technology, but they didn't really make much use of it. I think one, one source you quote use, uses the word sterile. Yes. I think, although... Observers from Europe who looked closely at Chinese printing in the 19th century realised that it was quite formidable in its uh, technological capacities. But for the most part, the whole of the 19th century sees a tendency to underrate China and to describe it not simply sterile but stagnant, etc., etc. This was, in fact, part of the very strong what can one say, Victorian self-image of, of an age of progress and so forth that defines itself against the uh, backward societies in the rest of the world. And uh, in the 18th century, people were much less sure that, that China was uh, so backward. But uh, in the 19th century, the, there emerges a narrative of, of China's perhaps initial dynamism you know, two or three thousand years ago, but a subsequent decline into complete inertia. And, and that narrative, I think, has influenced the way we look at China's past even today. Uh, for example, I just said, why didn't printing have more of an impact in China? That To say that is, in a sense, already assuming that, that China was not a vibrant society in, in the last thousand years at least, if not longer, and to try and find reasons why things did not happen, you know, the, the dead hand of the you know, Confucian mandarins or something like that. But uh, I think, again, this is an entirely separate but very new area of research in Chinese studies. Economic historians of China have come to realise that China's economic development only really began to lag behind very, very late in the day, maybe around about 1800. Mm. So if the Victorians saw China as not doing too well, then projecting that backwards was, was perhaps rather misguided. Mm. And of course, the reason for this is that nobody bothered to really look at Chinese history closely. Mm. Most people who interacted with China had a different agenda, like missionaries or business people and so forth. So China's past as, a, as an area of historical study was something that's only come through 
very slowly in, in the 20th century, late 20th century at that. And of course, it's been helped by Chinese and Japanese historians uh, as much as by European historians of China. Now, to understand the backdrop against which printing emerged, we have to understand what kind of scribal culture China had. And if we say scribal culture, I suppose we initially think about medieval Western monks yes. illuminating manuscripts. Yes. And that's highly inadequate as a, as, a, as a model for understanding what scribal culture was to the Chinese in, in the centuries we're talking about. Yes, paper came through in what's the traditional date, 105 AD, and, and certainly by that stage as a writing material it, it had been developed to the point where it could be uh, used quite readily, and, and it, of course it was much cheaper than uh, um, other materials that had existed before but also from much earlier they'd had the writing brush now if you think of uh, Chinese calligraphy that, that, that rather sort of freehand uh, all over the place sort of style of writing uh, that in China is an expressive art because uh, uh, it, it, it can embody individuality that is the polar opposite of the monk slowly working with an illuminated manuscript. Now I must say that in fact copying rates for, by professional copyists were not that fast because they were extremely careful and therefore you know, in pages per day they weren't necessarily that far ahead of medieval monks but the materials they were using were much cheaper and therefore the sheer volume of manuscripts circulating in society was quite quite astounding. The, the one that, that really impressed me was when I discovered that an emperor asked for 300,000 copies of one document and apparently got it. So we have to rethink the background of printing so that the transition from manuscript to print is not quite the same and I think actually that explains a lot about why printing doesn't receive the uh, acclaim that it does in, in Europe. And again, the very interesting statistic I, I found in Europe was the uh, one run of the Gutenberg, one of his Bibles that was actually using animal skins, as, vellum. As, yes, vellum, to, to produce a run of 32 Bibles. He has to wipe out a, you know, several flocks of uh, animals uh, to get that done. Now, the Chinese were, were not never in that position, uh, and that allowed for far greater circulation of uh, manuscript materials from the 2nd century uh, AD onwards. Now, to zoom in, home yeah. in on your book, which has mm. one of the most intriguing titles that I've recently come across, The Woman Who Discovered Printing. Mm. Tell me a little bit about this woman and what her, her claims to fame were. OK, well, she's the only woman who has ruled China in her own right. You would find, of course, old dowager empresses who would manipulate their younger emperors to, uh, to control politics, uh, even right at the end of the... Manchu Empire in, in the 1900s. But uh, this woman dispensed with all those kind of ploys and simply said, I am an emperor, using the male title. She ran her own dynasty, therefore, giving it its own separate title, which even today history books tend to ignore 
you know, if you look at a list of Chinese dynasties, she's not there mm. uh, as a separate dynasty. So does that mean the Tang dynasty is unbroken and her, her reign Absolutely. Doesn't, doesn't feature? Absolutely. Just just check any, any book on Chinese history you care to name uh, in this country or, or China or wherever. The Tang dynasty is seen as an unbroken sequence of uh, getting on for 300 years. But no, it was supplanted, single-handed by this extraordinary person. Now, of course, she was vilified once the dynasty was restored. Of course, you know, there's a tangled tale of uh, sexism and so forth involved there. That the, the very thought that a woman could uh, be emperor was just unspeakable to the uh, average Chinese historian. So people tended to play up uh, the evil that she did, which was not inconsiderable. She. Uh, tended to excel in all the sort of imperial activities of that age and things like arbitrary murder was one of the things that most emperors got involved in during that period. But uh, it's quite clear that her murders seem to weigh for more than, for example, her father-in-law was seized the throne by an act of fratricide and uh, supplanted his own father. But people think of him as a you know, perfectly decent emperor. Whereas... Uh, Quite clearly, from very early on, nobody really knew what to make of her. And in some ways, I think if she was the one who helped promote printing, then what has happened is that because nobody wanted to talk about her, that the materials that could demonstrate that have simply not been transmitted. Mm. So it's a question of trying to build up the circumstantial evidence. Mm. And we're talking about a period around the turn of the 8th century in the Christian yes. calendar. Yes, around about the time of Bede, in other words. Uh, so late 7th and the very beginning of the uh, 8th century, around about 700. Now, it struck me that with a central figure in the book who has been <laughs> suppressed in later history fairly systematically, it must be very difficult to, to write anything about her, let alone adduce evidence for her, her involvement in the early stages of printing. So how did, how did you begin to put things things together? Uh, perfectly accidentally. I only got into this because a German friend uh, came over in 1996. I remember that clearly because it was uh, European Championship and uh, I don't know if you recall 1996. You know, we lose yeah. to Germany on penalties, I think. But uh, anyhow, he showed up and I was feeling somewhat jaundiced at having to entertain a German colleague. But he showed me a translation of a Taoist text that he'd made. And it so happened that I'd been working with this text uh, somewhat earlier. And I realised that whereas there'd been some debate as to when it was written, it was clearly 7th century at the latest. And as I was reading his translation, I found a reference to printing on paper. And as it were, scales fell from my eyes because there are books about printing in China. And one imagines that they've been through all the relevant sources. Uh, because they were done by great scholars of the past uh, and uh, you know, our olders and betters, great Chinese scholar in America, for example. But then I realised that perhaps they hadn't been through religious materials uh, because they thought, well, perhaps they would assume there's nothing about technology in them. But then I started looking through religious materials, uh, not systematically, but just keeping my eyes open, and gradually little bits of the jigsaw fell into place. 
And to the extent that I've done anything novel, I think what it is is I've been trying to bring in those types of materials to support my arguments. Mm. So tell me more about how the religious texts were linked with the, 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 the empire of, of Empress Wu. Okay, well, you have to see that at that time the, there are two main religious ideologies available to power holders. One based on Taoist ideas of majesty, which would emphasize all the sort of normal legitimating features that Chinese have always used, like descent and so forth, you know, the family consciousness. And the other would be Buddhist, and that would rely on imagery from India. Now, the Empress was married into a family where Taoist ideas were important because they claimed descent from the founder of Taoism, and hence a sort of um, divine descent rather like the Japanese emperors. And indeed, I find it interesting that that idea can only be verified in Japan for the 7th century. Um, I do suspect some Chinese influence there. Now, when she finds that she has to make a go of things alone, obviously that's not going to work. So she throws her weight behind the whole Buddhist panoply of legitimation, claiming to be a sort of supernatural Buddhist figure. At one point she claimed to be the future Buddha, Maitreya, but since Maitreya is all-merciful, I think that was quite a hard act to carry off given the arbitrary nature of her rule. So uh, I think she dropped that after a bit, but in in general she was uh, trying to use Buddhist ways of thinking to support her her regime. So what I did, and, and One thing that helped me is that uh, the assiduous Buddhists of Taiwan have put the entire corpus of Buddhist literature in Chinese into digital form so you can search it, you know, uh, with a click of the mouse. I looked at references to things like seals to try and find out how aware people were of the process of printing. In Europe, it's interesting that we think of a seal as particular, you know, sealing wax and so forth. It's to do with an identifying mark, and that does exist in in China. But also, uh, people in the 7th century seem to be much more aware of the way a seal was a matrix that could make many copies. And indeed, we know that the Empress manufactured security passes in this way. So what I managed to establish, I think, from from religious sources is that there was a, a tremendous upsurge in interest in these processes around about 700. And then it was a question of looking for a motive for her to use those processes. Because as I say, you know, you want a lot of copies, you can have your scribe sit down and make them. And that's where relics become important, because the great Indian ruler Ashoka is said to have distributed the relics of the Buddha in 84,000 pieces in a single day. And that was, as it were, a demonstration of his power. Now, that would have been great if she could have done that, and she talked about doing it. And those those relics were corporeal. Well, this is the interesting point, that that, uh, you do get Buddha bones, the Buddha's tooth and so forth. You do get them in much more handy shapes and sizes where they look like little jewels. Uh, And some of those have been exhibited in London uh, in the past, and I think we've still got some in the the custody of the Buddhist society or, or someone. But to create 84,000 jewels would obviously take a little time and effort. Now, it so happened that unlike Christianity, the words of the Buddha, which after all emanate from him, were treated as relics as well. 
Therefore, Buddhist texts could be used to function as relics, as sort of little bits of holiness. And I think what one has to suppose is that she went down that route and decided that uh, if she was going to distribute relics, they'd have to be 84,000 little bits of Buddha's word. And one strong hint that, that somebody had had that idea is the fact that uh, another empress in Japan who similarly had ruled in her own right somewhat later in, in, in the uh, 8th century uh, actually created a million little slips of paper, many of which survive today, and, and distributed them as relics in little reliquaries. Uh, it's quite clear that they weren't meant to be read. They're there to demonstrate her, her power and her ability to act like a great Buddhist ruler. And now it's conceivable that the Japanese uh, could have had this idea on their own, but uh, Japan at that time was only just emerging as a literate society. There are you know, strong signs that Japan wasn't even comfortable with writing. It had to borrow Chinese writing because up until the ninth century it didn't have any script of its own. So I think, again, this is a, a sort of hint that something had happened in China, maybe something that people subsequently didn't want to talk about, but something that gave an example to Japan. So you can see the after effect or possible ripples in mm. Japan, and you can see technology and various intellectual and religious things feeding towards this, but in, in terms of hard evidence that's, that's elusive at the moment. Yes, so far. Uh, I must say that... Um, one of my reviewers uh, has been in correspondence with me and he said, well, couldn't you put a question mark at the end of your uh, book title? Uh, well, yes, but uh, <laughs> I think in a sense, I'm more convinced than when I finished the book because I only had you know, the time and money to write up to around about 900. And I've been looking at the period after this. Uh, when the dynasty falls, it's quite clear that people in political control start to edge towards using printing, but they do in, do so in a rather sheepish way. The state seems reluctant to print for some reason. They, they describe it as what we would call a sort of public-private partnership, you know. Uh, there seems to be some ideological barrier there. Eventually, everybody's doing it, and I think that may be partly because the dynasty ended in complete chaos and, and uh, uh, widespread warfare, and the number of copyists perhaps dropped below what was normal in China. And so printing became economically perhaps more attractive in a way that it hadn't been before. So you could say that I should have put a question mark after that, but uh, my subsequent reading does tend to confirm me in the, in, in the view that uh, it's a reasonable hypothesis. It explains things that haven't been explained before. Maybe it's, a, it's wrong, but it's as a decent a, a reconstruction of events as... Uh, I can manage at any rate and if anybody can think of a better one then they're welcome to try. And if we could actually see one of these texts what would it look like? Well it would be at this stage it would be like a, a slip of paper maybe less than a foot long maybe not more than an inch or so wide with Chinese characters printed on it and um, deliberately probably made quite small so it could be rolled up and put inside a very simple reliquary. In, in the Japanese case they're made of wood and a, a little sort of miniature pagoda as it were. So that's what I imagined. Um, um, but of course once the technique was known then 
although the state uh, remained reluctant to use it. And of course, the state was one of the few agencies that really needed you know, huge numbers of copies of documents. There's nothing to stop people using printing. For example, when a lot of copies of something were needed in a hurry, as for example, calendars, the first we know about uh, Chinese printing in about 830 something. Uh, the oldest example we have of Chinese printing, which is in Russia at the moment, is a calendar. Though curiously, even much later, uh, calendars are also produced in manuscript. So the economic benefits won't have been spectacular, I imagine. Calendars or steady sellers. The other things that we see coming through are reference works like dictionaries, uh, legal texts, religious texts that, that are sort of real classics. Uh, so that's where printing starts to make headway mm -hmm. uh, with certain categories of text. And you can see that gradually happening, in, especially in the uh, 9th century. And then in the 10th, it becomes much more obvious. One of the fascinating things in the book is the suggested link between global <laughs> I was going to say global warming, but global cataclysm, yes. um, and the intellectual and religious climate. Can you say a little bit about okay. how that actually has an influence in printing? Because that was fascinating. Yes. Well, I, I know nothing. Uh, I know nothing about uh, the reconstructing the history of climate apart from uh, what I read in in the technical papers I bump into or find on the web. So. I was a bit diffident about this, and in a sense my argument doesn't depend on there having been a climate catastrophe in the 530s, but uh, it seems to be a fairly common idea that there was a climate catastrophe. And what I find interesting is that it probably was something like a large volcanic explosion that led to a sort of semi-nuclear winter, low crop yields, etc, etc, and uh, lower temperatures, um, more people starving. People seem to have got through that in its immediate consequences, but uh, it seems to me that it left the whole tradition of thinking about the end of the world uh, particularly vibrant in in the late 6th and, and in the 7th century, that, that, that now people were seriously worried. You know, they thought about this stuff in theory, and indeed it seems that um, there are some reasons for thinking that Chinese climate was pretty rough say from the second century AD through to about the fourth or beginning of the fifth anyhow. But just when things seem to be getting better and the weather seems to be getting warmer, suddenly there's a reverse. So all the sort of fears that they had come flooding back and, and it's more difficult to make them go away. The reason why I mention this is not because I think it directly gives rise to, to printing, but it means that rulers, mm -hmm. and I think this could have been true in Europe as, as, as much as in, in um, uh, East Asia, rulers have to demonstrate their legitimacy in religious terms to preempt the sort of appearance mm -hmm. of messiahs, mm -hmm. of whom we know there were quite a great number in, in East Asia and indeed elsewhere in the world at that time. So. I'm not building my case on that, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Ooh, and it fits. It certainly fits the, the evidence, I suppose. Um, so far, yes. I wanted to ask you two, two final things. One was about a, an interesting character in the book called Gong, whom you say might have oh, been yes. the first printer. I wanted to say a little bit about how he also played <laughs> into the sort of um, religious climate of his time. Yes, well, he's one of these false messiahs, and he has some magic device that um, can create writing automatically. 
there's just a very short passage about him, you, you know, about 20, 30 words long in, in, in a Chinese history that was turned up by Chinese scholars a few years ago. It's hard to say exactly what his device was, but it does show that the idea of creating writing in a non-scribal way was out there. And in a sense, he's, he's actually sixth century. It shows that at that stage, it was novel enough you can try and build a career as a messiah on it. And of course, he got caught and uh, I think probably executed. He was, uh, he was printing, it seemed to his viewers, by blowing on yes, the paper. Yes, I mean, that's, the word for blowing is in the text. Um, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. It could be that it's not just that he's using a, uh, a pattern surface to transfer the pattern to a piece of paper, but there's something like magic ink there, you know, that only shows up under certain circumstances. He obviously was up to something. We'll never know. But uh, it, it certainly seemed to me well worth mentioning because he deserves his little... Uh, you know, 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> in, the, in the annals of, of printing. Absolutely. The last thing I wanted to ask you was what kind of reaction you imagine your book will have in China? Towards the end, I discussed where I thought I stood in relation to earlier scholarship, saying that I felt that I had been lucky to use religious materials that other people had not used before and this was partly because the Confucian and later the Marxist tradition of history writing tended to downplay the importance of religion. That's not the case today. Uh, Chinese scholars since the 1980s have uh, upped their game to the point where it's very very hard to keep up with them. You know they are uh, of course, much more familiar with their own sources. And uh, they've now got the critical ideas and the assiduity. They're not just writing for political purposes. So I hope my ideas will stimulate Chinese scholars to do that further work and, and to test my hypothesis. In a way, I, I also felt that by suggesting that, that um, there was an element of uh, sexism that had uh, concealed the story of printing, that also might make people think a little. I mean, our ambassador from China in London at the moment is a woman, but it must be said that uh, not many women are in a position of uh, influence in China at the moment. And so I think that a title like The Woman Who Invent Discovered Printing is also a uh, sort of a challenge, I hope. Uh, but we'll see. Tim Barrett, thank you very much. Thank you.